morning, church. A couple quick bits of uh, church business housekeeping. Um, as many of you know, this last week, uh, sadly, we lost Gigi, uh, Marion Frodine, who uh, we all dearly love. If you've never met Gigi, um, you probably recognize her uh, when we show you a picture, but um, she's just a sweet, sweet lady, and we are going to miss her very much. She had a fall and uh, could not recover, and so... More details to come uh, as we mourn with and celebrate um, celebrate the life of Gigi with uh, the Frodian family. But a um, couple other little bits of housekeeping. Uh, first of all, we're working on what it looks like to be together on Easter. And I just want to make it real clear that it's not, um, we are not meeting in person as a whole church from Easter forward, um, but we are gathering together as a whole church on Easter. Now, um, some of you, I, I just wanna uh, continue to kind of tell the story of who we are and what we're becoming as a church. Um, there's this definite pull in all of us, okay, let's just be honest, to go back to normal. And I think for many of us, the idea of returning to business as usual when it comes to how we, how we operate as a church is on many of your minds. And I get that. It's a natural thing. It's a natural human thing. Um, but we are beginning to realize, actually, we're not just beginning, but we have realized um, that we, um, we are different now, um, that normal wasn't really forming us in the ways of becoming, uh, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus did. It wasn't forming us well that way. And so all throughout scripture, the people of God um, had a tendency to want to return to normal. Okay, whether it was the people of Israel leaving Egypt, the Exodus, being in the wilderness, there was a desire for them to return to Egypt. Um, there's always something, and here's the thing, there's always a strong pull back to believing something that happened in the past is where we need to return to. But I actually believe that we are in a moment, not just us, but the church, the global church is in a moment of, of being refined, of being tested, of being um, shaped into the kind of people that God needs us to be moving forward. And so it won't look the same, is what I'm telling you. Um, and so just asking me, hey, when are we reopening? Um, that's not the, the full question. The question we've been wrestling with is who we want to be, not how we're going to be. And so I want to pray because I think this message today is, is another piece of what that looks like. So pray with me as you will, God. Uh, we, first of all, Lord, we uh, are mourning the loss of Gigi. And um, we love her. Um, and she loved us. And uh, her life was incredible. Uh, walk with us today as we enter into this conversation God, of what it looks like to love well, 
of what it looks like to be the people that you've called us to be in the time that we find ourselves. And so we pray this, God. We pray this as we need your challenge. We need your encouragement. We need your spirit to transform us from the inside out. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So just a real quick recap of my journey um, in the church. Because some of you, I've had conversations with you, and some of you have actually had the same experience. Your experience with the the church kind of growing up was this idea of we were taught how to uh, have a quiet time, have uh, to study the Bible, to pray. We were taught how to show up in community and how to dress properly or whatever, and the th- the right ways to say things. But I personally was never uh, taught uh, from the church how to deal with my emotions well. And emotions really are a cry of the heart. Emotions are um, what comes to the surface of what's happening deeper inside of us. And so the reason why we're doing this series about uh, apprenticing Jesus, following Jesus with our whole selves, is that I think many of us have been uh, poorly discipled on what that totally looks like when it comes to our emotions. And our emotions have a lot to do with everything. Now, in my life, uh, part of the church teaching for me was to push my emotions down, to um, not trust my emotions. Um, not look at your past, not look at your family of origin, not look at any of those things because, you know, Jesus saved you in, in, in the futures ahead. And so uh, the reason why we're doing this is because I think there's so much of, of, of us being complete, whole, fully alive, awake human beings that God calls us to be that we can actually show up in this world healthy. And by showing up in this world healthy, not perfect, healthy. So so when we show up in this world and we make a mess of things or we uh, hurt someone's feelings or we uh, get into a conflict, that we can actually be healthy in the midst of it, expressing the love of God to people all around us. Now, what's interesting is this, this idea of denying feelings is, is stoicism. Um, if you're familiar with Greek philosophy, um, Stoicism was, uh, we'll get into this more in a little bit, but Stoicism was this idea of, of pushing down your emotions. Um, and, and Paul actually taught against this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, we're not to deny our humanity. Okay, um, The goal of being uh, discipled by Jesus, of following Jesus, our rabbi teacher, is to be the fully human being that God intended us to be. That God actually created us in his image and in his likeness to flourish, to rule, to steward, to create life everywhere we go. And that was taken from us in the sense in the garden because then we began to want something else. We wanted to be God and not be servants of God. So for you and me, it's the idea For you and me to be fully human, to be fully alive, to be fully connected to God, fully aware of ourselves, um, it takes all the things we've been talking about. It actually takes us understanding our story. It takes us being vulnerable. It takes us looking into our past and our family of origin. It takes us forgiving people. That's what it takes. 
And so the end goal of all of this, this has been our vision steer- series to start 2021. 20, the end goal of all of this, the telos, the purpose of this, is that emotional health and following Jesus with our whole selves, the whole purpose of this is to love well. It's to love well. Now, what do you mean by, you're probably saying, what does that mean to love well? Um, Remember when we were in the book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians this last fall, and right around chapter two, there's uh, there's this poem. And I would argue that this poem is the primary, it it, kind of holds in it the primary job of the church, of the community of people who love Jesus and follow Jesus. That our primary job and purpose as a church is to love well. And to love well means to love God well. It means to love each other well. and And it means to love the world well. Now, what's interesting in all three of these, love God, love each other, and love the world well, the hinge is to love each other well. And check this out. This is, this is John 13. This is Jesus um, approaching the cross, like knowing where he's headed. And he says this, and it's just in a, in a, in a conversation he's having with Peter and the disciples. He says this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, what's interesting there is the world will know, everyone will know that you, okay, are my disciples if you love each other. So part of expressing God's love for the world actually has to do with us expressing and showing our love and attachment to each other. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a group of people and someone has prayed this prayer. God, show my neighbor that you love them. God, would you just show my neighbor, would you just show my kids that you love them? Would you just show my my dad and my mom, that you love them. Have you ever heard that prayer before? What's interesting is, do you know how God answers that prayer? He answers that prayer with you. I've never met anybody that they were kind of, you know, walking down the street one day and all of a sudden they, um, that God like, uh, like, I mean, God can do this, but I, I don't, I've never heard someone uh, like tell the story that, you know, I was just walking down the street one day and uh, I didn't know God at all. And then all of a sudden I felt God's love in me. Now I'm sure it can happen. God does amazing things. But the point is, is that when you and I show up in people's lives and show them that we love them, no matter what, okay, um, that is expressing the love of God in them. So how, how will we, as a church, moving forward, remember, we're trying to figure out uh, who we are and not how, right? And so, so much of the church uh, conversation this last year has been, how do we get back tomorrow? How do we, you know, record services? How do we do this? How do we do that? But I think God wants to figure out, like, show us who we are. And so the question is, is like, how will this world know that God loves them? 
How will how will people far from God know that God is just absolutely madly, intentionally, relentlessly in pursuit of them? Is it you and me having like regathering as a church and having a, a great church service? No, that's not that's not how the world will know that God loves them. Maybe it's let's all get some uh, restoration logo T-shirts or some bumper stickers. And we plaster those and wear those. Maybe we wear it all on the same day. People are like, wow, there's this church. Everybody's wearing the same shirts. Like, big deal, right? The idea is that you and I, how we show that God loves this world and that God loves our neighbors and God loves our community and God loves this city is God rubbing us in like salt all over this city. That's how it goes. And in John 15, Jesus continues. This is a continued conversation. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. And so the the, the command is to love each other here, that like this is the hinge piece that Jesus says you've got to love each other. You've got to lay down your life for each other. And then he goes, and then this is, this is also the writer, John. In 1 John 4, he says, Whoever claims to love God, yet hates his brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love God, uh, love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So it's really all about love. And we're going to get into the, the word love here and the definition of it. But he's basically saying, like, you could sing all the worship hits that you want. But if you hate your brother or sister who you're adopted into this family of God with, you're a liar. That's the hinge of everything that Jesus is saying. That in order to love God well, and in order to love the world well, you have to love each other well. Not avoid each other. Not write each other off. Not ignore each other. Not just hold grudges and frustrations with each other. You have to love each other. And I admit, I'm starting this thing off a little, a little heavy. Um, but this is what all of this hinges on. The who we're going to be moving forward. Who cares about the how? The who we're going to be moving forward has to embody this. This, this love, this covenant, steadfast family attachment. To each other, and and we get it. We like I said, we get it into, caught up into thinking about how we're going to be. But this is the acid test of the church. Okay, everything hinges on us loving each other, and out of that just spills. I mean, that's how we worship God. That's how it spills out into the world. And here's the craziest thing. Here's the big gamble of Jesus. Jesus ties his witness. And, okay, his authenticity 
to our ability to love well. Jesus ties his message, his witness, who he is, his authenticity. It's this big gamble. He ties it to us. He pushes all the chips. He bets on us. That's crazy. That's like, he should have had a plan B, right? Because we haven't done this really well. I mean, and here's the thing. It is difficult and it's hard work. It's this idea of crucifying ourselves. It's the idea of denial of ourselves. We have work to do when it comes to loving each other. Now, a couple quick things. Here's what love, love is not, and I just want to make sure we're clear on this. We did a conversation about what forgiveness is not. Love is not a feeling, okay? The, a lot of times our culture tells us that if there's no feeling, then there's no love. And that's not true. Our culture says that you have to love someone. Yeah, you only have to love someone you like. Uh, scripture tells us that's not the case. Scripture tells us to love our enemies. You don't have to like your enemies then. They're not your enemies if you like them. You have to love people. You have to love your enemies. So we only, in our culture, we only love people we like. We only love people who are like us, right? Because, I mean, we love ourselves. Um, but true biblical love is actions and truth. And so the idea behind love actually means I, I, I may not even feel like loving somebody. I may not even feel like I like somebody, but I'm called to love them. Second one is this, love is not tolerance. And that's a tough one right now in our world. You know, this idea of to each his own, live and let live kind of tolerance. To disagree with somebody is not to hate someone. And our culture right now is frothing in disagreement and hatred towards each other. To disagree with someone means you just disagree with them. Now what's interesting, okay, is in this version of love, love is tolerance, if you believe love is tolerance, here's the thing. Jesus didn't tolerate us. God doesn't just put up with us and tolerate us. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, that's just an insane idea. If God were merely tolerant of us, he would not have come down, become human, lived this life, suffered what he suffered in mere toleration of us. He is not indifferent of us. Tolerance actually communicates indifference. God is not indifferent towards us. He is loving, and for him to love is, means that he acts. So from his love, it comes action, comes response towards us. And that's who our model is, Jesus. Jesus, God becoming human, okay, the incarnation, becoming flesh and blood to ache and hurt, to be wounded, to feel emotion, 
and to live this life suffering and dying, taking on the weight of sin and that separation of sin, God, Jesus still disapproved of the world and, and yet laid down his life for us. Love is incarnation. Love is Jesus becoming human. He entered our world as a whole person, physically and emotionally. Jesus, God in flesh. Check this out, John 1.14. It says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, the beginning of that, the word, is actually Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy, logos, is the word. It's from Stoic thought, like we talked about before. The idea behind the logos is that this divine, impersonal, harmonious uh, source of the cosmos. Okay, that's Greek thought. And it, it, the Logos was rational, which means it made sense, and it was divine. Okay, think of, of Greek deity. Now, John writes that the divine, okay, wasn't impersonal, but personal. John, like, throws this huge, like, uh, scandalous version of what God is like back into thought. He says that Jesus was flesh, the logos, uh, that, that Jesus was this personal divine source of the universe becoming flesh and blood and dwells among us, that lived with us. This is the way Eugene Peterson in, interprets that that verse, he says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Moved into the neighborhood. Love took on skin and bones. Um, the personal love of God made physical, tangible, the metaphysical becoming phys physical. If love is God moving into our world, why is that love? Okay, how is that love? Well, two quick illustrations. Prepare yourself, okay? Because this first illustration um, has never been done by me before um, and probably will never be done by me again. It is a positive illustration coming from the world of country music. I know. So sit up real straight, Susan Clark. Here it comes. Um, Johnny Cash. Uh, many of you know Johnny Cash. Uh, Johnny Cash has actually a famous album. He wrote, um, he wrote some songs, um, and then a few years later, he actually performed this album, uh, a cluster of songs, at Folsom Prison. Folsom Prison is a prison outside of Sacramento, California. And if you ever listen to this album, I encourage you to go listen to it. It's, uh, it's wild because... Um, especially on vinyl, um, I'm told that on this on this album, um, you hear just the groans of the inmates, like when he's singing some songs and and they're and they're excited, and then you know he talks about uh, in some of his songs just the hardship and stuff. Like you can you can actually literally hear the groans of the inmates who who hear him and listen to him, and and obviously the songs just are nuts. They're you know taking you know doing cocaine and 
um, you know, trying to kill your wife. But the point is, okay, that's country, right? So the point is, um, here's the craziest thing. Like, that's his most famous prison concert because he cut an album in Folsom Prison. But the first time he ever played in a prison, he played at San Quentin. And San Quentin in California is a state penitentiary, like for the hardest of the hard, like criminals. And he played in San Quentin in the 50s. And what's crazy about this story is it actually has a lot to do with another country music star. Because as an inmate in San Quentin, there was a guy who is yet to become a country music star, and his name was Merle Haggard. And so Johnny Cash is, is playing his songs in San Quentin. And Merle Haggard has just been in trouble with the law. He's like 20 years old. He's been in and out of prison, juvie, all these things, stealing stuff, whatever. They finally throw him in 15-year sentence. And he almost tried to escape with a guy, um, but decided not to. The guy told him, you shouldn't come with me. You, you sing songs. You're really good at this. You're going to get out one day and make a, make a star of yourself. Uh, and, and it's a good thing he didn't escape, try to escape with that guy. But the point is, is that Merle Haggard... Uh, talks about uh, the this idea of Johnny Cash being one of them in prison. Like Johnny Cash just strolls in. He's just he's just like kind of tough and rough. And and this is a quote from Merle Haggard. He says he had the right attitude. He chewed gum. He looked arrogant and flipped the bird to the guards. He did everything the prisoners wanted to do. He was a mean mother from the South who was there because he loved us. When he walked away, everyone in that place had become a Johnny Cash fan. Merle Haggard goes on to, many people would, would think, like outpace Johnny Cash as far as his songwriting. The point is, is like this idea of identification. That's what incarnation is. Like Jesus comes to earth and identifies with us and lives in our world. And, um, and different than Johnny Cash, he didn't flip the bird to the guards. But the point is, like, this is love as identification. If, if love is God moving into our world, then what is love look like? It looks like identification, right? It, it's this idea of I can see things your way and not completely lose myself. I can see things your way and not have to argue my point. I can hang between your world and my world in a healthy way. Um, that, that's part of this idea of loving well. Okay? Loving well is caring for people, being in their world, and, and, and identifying with them. Another story of illustration. I'm going to read you a quote of this famous person. And I'm going to talk about where this comes from. Is how it starts. It says, things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture 
the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Church, that was Martin Luther King. And he wrote in his letter uh, from Birmingham jail, uh, he wrote these words. And, and, and here's the thing. If you've never read the letter, you need to read it. I mean, it's straight up homework for you today. Now, the reason why this is important, I want to throw out the context of the letter. Martin Luther King came to protest. He came to Birmingham. Um, there was a scheduled protest. They were just going to march, peacefully march. Now, the powers that be in Birmingham passed a law very quickly, uh, shot it through legislature. It was actually unconstitutional of uh, how it was illegal to march. And so when... Uh, Martin Luther King came and his peaceful protest. You got to understand the background of how Martin Luther King would protest. Um, and it was, it's a really powerful thing. I would encourage you to take a look at it. But um, people would actually have to sign statements that they wouldn't get violent. It was amazing. And so Martin Luther King gets thrown in jail. He gets delivered to him in jail. A newspaper, the Birmingham newspaper, and in it is a letter from eight of the most prominent white pastors in Birmingham. And the letter was addressed to Martin Luther King and his um, marchers. And in this letter, these white, eight white pastors actually talk about how they're thankful that the police kept everything from getting out of hand, blah, 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 blah. So Martin Luther King actually writes a letter not to everybody in the world, not to the citizens of Birmingham. He writes this letter to eight pastors from jail. And basically what he says in the letter, and I want to encourage you to read it, is like, you don't identify with, you're not loving us well. You're not listening. You're not seeing the world from our perspective. You're not caring for your brothers and sisters. And he says the contemporary church, he goes on he, in, this, in this thing, he says, the contemporary church is weak and it's ineffectual. It props up other things. It doesn't, it doesn't love well. And, you know, things haven't changed very much. They have in some ways, and, and, but in, in some ways they haven't. And if we're going to be the kind of church that confronts injustice, that steps into places that are dark, that sits with people who are hurting and, and experiencing loss, that cleans up our messes, that asks forgiveness, that opens up about our story, that is excited to hear about other people's stories, that, that just wants to listen to people's perspectives and not try to convince them or trick them or bait and switch them or, or try to uh, defend the faith or whatever it is, we have to love well. Love is identification. Jesus is our model of love. 
that he comes to the earth, he comes to humanity, and this is how we know about love, because Jesus shows it to us. Check out Philippians 2. Remember, this is a hymn not just about God, it's a hymn about us. And it starts in verse 5. I know you guys are like, Philippians again? Yes. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Remember, this is all about our relationships with one another. That's what this is all about. It's not theology. It's about our relationships with one another. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He laid it down. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, and that word servant is doulos, remember, slave. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Love is incarnational. Love is, I value you more than me. Love is laying myself down because I have the same mindset of Jesus. Now, how do we love each other so well? How do we love each other well, um, so well that people in the world pay attention? Okay? We have to become a community of love. We have to become a community of hesed. Now, hesed is the Hebrew word of God's love. And it's a tricky word because it's one of those biblical words that's really difficult to get into English. And translators have struggled with this uh, a long time. Um, this word occurs 250 times in the Old Testament. And in different versions of scripture, you can hear it translated God's mercy, God's kindness, God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's loyalty. And there's no single word, okay, that quite gets it which is why some translators have used more than one word. So steadfast love or loyal love or loving kindness. Here's what one scholar writes. He says, the word describes something that happens within an existing relationship, whether between two human beings or between God and man. In human relationships, hesed implies loving our neighbor, not merely in terms of warm emotional feelings, but in acts of love and service that we owe to the other person simply because he is part of the covenant community. Neuroscientists have discovered that the identity, uh, that the human identity forms through attachments, meaning that, um, that like when a, when a baby is growing, this is the joy center, the frontal cortex, this idea of like, uh, of faces and joy uh, when a parent shows a lot of fear or doesn't show a lot of attachment it actually is forming something in that child and so that's why it's so fun with little kids it's just the faces and the smiles and the attachment and the sounds and all those things is forming that child with attachment and so some people have attachment issues in their life and it has to go back with how they were raised or trauma or things like that. The idea behind this is that you and I biblically 
are being attached. We have loving attachment to God, meaning God has welcomed us in and, and is, is trying to reform and retransform and heal our attachments. And God does that through each other. And so that's why business as usual as church, showing up once a month on a Sunday, hearing the sermon, listening to the worship, because some of you just listen, and leaving after you grab a donut is not an said community. It's not a loving community. A loving community is, is intentional, um, time-making, space-making, being present, uh, intentionally loving in action, in, in word, and in deed, each other um, loyally, um, like holding on tight, um, stepping in, fiercely caring for each other. That's what a said community is. And here's the problem. You fast forward in the life of the church, John, the same one that talked about loving one another, how what Jesus said, John writes a letter. He writes as he's being told by the Spirit to the church in Ephesus. This is Revelation 2, 1 through 4. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, this is Jesus, says, write this to John. These are the words of him who holds the, the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have grown and, and have not grown weary. He's saying, here's you, you've done all this great stuff. You've, you've, you've stayed strong. You've been persevering. You've done all this cool stuff. He says, but in verse four, he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You have forsaken the covenant loyalty, the hesed, this fierce love you had at first. You've forsaken it. Now, can we be honest? I think one of the ways we have to go is we have to be really honest with where we are as the church going forward. And if we're not willing to be honest, we're not going to make steps. Can we be really honest right now? The American Christian church, okay, has spent too much time trying to be right instead of being loving. Period, end of story. We have spent too much time trying to be right instead of being loving. N.T. Wright talks about the incarnation of Jesus. He says, as you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, uh, the most powerful thought you should think is, this is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. So here's the thing, church, as we enter Lent, Ash Wednesday, last Wednesday, um, entering Lent, the season of Lent, the season of Lent is meant to remind us of our mortality, of our fallenness, of our need and desperation for God, of our wandering, of our exile, of our brokenness. That's what Lent is, okay? Okay. You may go, that's a, very, that's a Catholic thing. No, it's not. It's a church thing. It's the history of the church. 
that heading towards remembering the cross, remembering what Jesus has done, we spend time mourning. And and the reason is, is because we have done nothing to receive God's love. God's covenantal, his, his loyal said of us. He has, he has fiercely chased us. And we've done nothing to deserve it. But we do everything to show it. And that's the kind of community we want to be. Covenant, loyal community with each other. The big gamble of Jesus is given to you and I to show the world what the love of God is. And we bear the responsibility of that love. And it starts with each other. Okay? And I'm not, this is not meant to crush you with uh, responsibility. This is meant to awaken you to this purpose in, in life. And it starts here, and it starts with each other. Church, uh, you know, here's the thing. Practice for this. Uh, get on the phone. Get with people in your life, followers of Jesus, family, you, and, 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 and sort it out. And love each other. And figure out what it looks like to love each other fiercely in a steadfast, covenantal, loyal relationship as family. And that will spill out. That will spill out. It will show the world what God is like. Let me pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to, to gather, to set aside our heads and our hearts and our lives and our frustrations. God, you have something really, really, really in store for this world. And it's your love. It's your relentless pursuit of people in their pain and you want to show the world that you love this world and you want to do that through us but God we have to learn how to do that with each other it starts with each other show us how to do that today God we pray these things in your name amen church next week we're going to wrap up this series and we're going to be taking communion in our house churches um, and in our online gatherings. And so prepare your heart, prepare your head, prepare your, your house uh, for what it looks like to, to come to the table together. And how precious and how uh, monumental a moment it is when we take communion. See you guys.